Good morning. Well, as you can tell, our teaching uh, this morning will be from Ephesians 3. I picked my two best life group readers to read that. One of them happens to be my wife. So today we will be concluding our Ecclesia series uh, by looking at uh, this chapter 3 together. And uh, we started way back when, November 1st, uh, with Chris Martin kicking it off and going over, kind of defining some terms and setting the boundaries for the study, uh, followed by uh, Nick Carruthers giving us eight reasons why we should even bother. Then Rich came and came, took over and uh, talked about the design of the church. Uh, and then Chris came back on the 22nd, and he talked about the church as the bride of Christ and admonished us to be ready in his teaching. And then Nick, back to Nick, uh, talking about the dangers of disunity in our current uh, social situation. Uh, and then uh, followed by Chris, uh, teaching on the authority of the church. This one sticks out in my mind because it was right after the crew championship, and Chris asked everybody to raise their hands, uh, those who attended, and I know many of us raised our hands, and he said seven. And this is a pastor, this is a senior pastor problem with inflating numbers and deflating numbers, and, uh, and we're working with Chris on that, and so... Um, uh, but uh, that was a good teaching. And then finally last week, um, Nick Carruthers uh, interviewed some of our members, four of our members, and it was a great time as well to hear how they're living out their faith uh, in this particular church. When we talk about church, we have to, you know, we, we, we kind of leave it to you to make these distinctions of, you know, is he talking about Linworth Road Church? Is he talking about uh, the churches across the nation, across the world? Is he talking about the invisible church? Uh, which is from the beginning of time and has all true believers in it. Uh, so uh, I will ask no less of you this morning to kind of walk with me as we uh, make those distinctions. But if I don't, I think you'll be able to figure it out. So we've been over definitions, designs, encouragements, admonitions, and exhortations within the church. These have all been taught on in the context of the church. And now some of you might be wondering, as you listen to this last uh, series, and we're in the waning years of 2020, and we're in the waning last uh, series of Ecclesia, and you might be thinking, uh, what more is there to talk about on the church? And I've been asking myself that very same question as I've prepared for this teaching, and I think, Wow, what, what is there? What else can be said other than that which I've gone over? Well, we will talk today about the mystery and the glory of the church, two shadowy words that uh, oftentimes uh, don't get talked about. So let's, uh, before we go much further, join with me in prayer. Dear God, as we're gathered uh, together as a local church, Linworth, this morning. Help us to grow in our understanding of you and your word and your church. Save us from being impressed by clever words or teachings and help us to humbly and fully depend on your guidance this morning and the rest of our lives. Shape us, change us, and make us conform to your image and the image of your church as we live out our faith in your church. Amen. Okay, I will refer to um, two books here today. 
this one is uh, James Montgomery uh, Boyce on his commentary on Ephesians. Uh, as we get into, when I start talking about things like Greek words, it's not from me. It's from this guy here because I don't speak Greek and I'm certainly not a scholar. And then Sheldon Vonnegut, who wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. I will uh, borrow off of both of these writers uh, in one degree or another. So, I've gathered my thoughts into two major themes, and this will be a fairly short teaching. Really, there's just two points, mystery and glory, as you can deduce from the title. I thought I'd make it a little catchy. I thought we'd call it, instead of mystery and glory, we'll call it the history of mystery and the story of glory. Cheesy, but you'll remember it. So, uh, the word mystery is ordinarily used to describe a series of, of events for which some solution is needed. We go straight to murder mysteries, many of us. And uh, the thing that kept sticking in my mind is, who murdered Colonel Mustard? That game of Clue that we used to play where we, you know, the whole game is about solving the puzzle. But the biblical use of the word is a little bit different. Here it is, what Paul's getting at, is something that has been revealed to uh, maybe just a few people, in this case the apostles, uh, and uh, certainly preached by the prophets, and it is given to some, and then it is gradually unfolding. And we'll develop this as we go through, how we see it unfolding even as Paul writes his letter, I suppose. Um, and that's the kind of mystery that Paul talks about when he describes the mystery of the church. In particular, uh, we want to think about uh, Paul writing and his amazement at the mystery. He, he's a little bit surprised in chapter 3, or at least he communicates his surprise in chapter 3, that people he once persecuted, in the case of the Ephesian church, there could have been some, perhaps, uh, Christians who once persecuted are now grafted in to his church. This is really amazing. Now, it's a little bit difficult sometimes, 2,000 years later, with our egalitarian souls. We've been kind of taught and, uh, to think of everything as equal um, and to think of everybody having a chance uh, and everybody having equal opportunity. And this just certainly has not been the case uh, in the history of our faith. There has been a sharp divide between Jew and Gentile. For example, in Ezra chapter 10, the prophet urges God's people to put away their pagan wives in something of a mass divorce. Um, he urges the prophet and the people are behind him urging this massive divorce because they've all taken pagan wives, non-Jewish wives, wives who believe and I suppose some of the wives may have taken husbands, but the, it's not written that way. But uh, many of these um, uh, wives were believing in multiple gods, not the one true God, Yahweh, but multiple gods. And some of these gods, uh, pagan gods, were uh, not necessarily described as perfect. Now, we, we think of, well, God is perfect. We've been taught that. It's a good teaching. It's true. He is perfect. But in the pagan sense, certainly in the Greek gods, we see 
imperfection all the time. And you can imagine what this would be like to get, a, you know, well, what is the will of, you know, this particular God over here? And then another God comes along and contradicts that will. And you think it's hard to know the will of God by reading the New Testament. Imagine being a pagan with multiple gods, multiple imperfect gods, contradicting each other all the time. So this was a critical situation where Jews had taken on, against the Deuteronomy law, uh, pagan wives. And so they're exhorted because of the corruption on the Jewish faith, because of their uncleanness, mass divorce, to put them aside. That's one example. We can come up with many more. I'll cover two. Another example could be found in Matthew chapter 15, where our Lord is... uh, interacting with a Canaanite woman. Let me read this to you without your turning there, but if you want to, it's 1521 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And the daughter and her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, there's a lot we could say about this passage, about the Canaanites versus Jews, and even about the healing of the woman, and about her humility. And Jesus is really lifting her up as a woman of great faith. The point I want to pull out of this is that the sharp distinction between Jew and Gentile. And what did Jesus say? After not saying anything, he finally said, it's not for you. Salvation is not for you, first and foremost. She makes an appeal and have a happy ending. The point here of Ezra and Jesus is that non-Jews are secondary in their heredity. They do not seek after God and that they potentially have a corrupting influence on the people of God. They're not first in the inheritance. Turning back to the church in Ephesus, made up of Jews and non-Jews, think about that for a moment. This is very early on in the formation of the church. The church was most likely thought of as an extension of Judaism at this point, not, didn't necessarily yet take on its own Christian shape. Um, Paul is saying that this mystery here is that the Jews and the Gentiles together, without circumcision, without going to the temple, without ever having stepped foot in Israel, have equal access to God. If you forget most of what is said here, remember verse 6. Verse 6 is kind of, um, you know, everything is kind of, it's the pivotal point of this chapter. And James Montgomery Boyce, who I'm going to quote here from in a minute, says in his commentary um, about the original Greek of verse 6, he says, Paul uh, uses the prefix sin, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, S-Y-N, in front of three Hebrew words, heir, body, and companion. So heir would be like a fellow heir of a, 
of the uh, inheritance and body is, you know, this would be the church body here this morning and a companion, of course, you know. And he, he puts those words, um, John Stott says erroneously in front of one of the words because he's, he's making a point and he's using uh, um, poetry or alliteration to make that point. Uh, Boyce complains that in, in this, this writing style is often lost in translation. In my new King James, there's no alliteration whatsoever. The translation is accurate, but it loses the kind of the spirit of the verse. If this point is lost on you, think, just think, turn our attention away to something a little more current. Martin Luther King's speech, um, I have a dream. King says, uh, in that speech, he says uh, that he, he yearns for a day, he dreams of a day when men will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And so you hear content, character, color, boom, boom, boom. And it's like, yeah, this is really good. Now imagine for a moment if he said, um, you know, the depth of character and the tone of skin. Depth of character and tone of skin. Doesn't work for me either. It doesn't, it's not the same. It's content, character, color of skin. In the same way here in uh, verse 6, there's a certain alliteration here. And Boyce says that the NIV captures it best. So let me read it to you in the NIV translation. And this translation that Karen and Rhonda used this morning kind of captured it too. I'll read NIV because Boyce likes it best. And uh, this says, Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, in, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. These are the same words that start with S-Y-N. And so you have a flow. What's he saying here? He's saying together, together, and together. What we read earlier was fellow, fellow, and fellow. And this is the mystery of the church that Paul is talking about. Three togethers in one church. We can think of it as that. This is nothing short of a new Israel. New Israel. Uh, a new chosen people. Well, not exactly. And there's not time to go into that right now. But at the end of Galatians, Paul does address the believers of that church in Galatia as the Israel of God. And what's he saying? He's saying, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. In the New Testament, there's a new Israel. This is quite a radical thing of the day. And we have to go back into history and learn about what was going on in the times and what was the history of animosity between Jews and Gentiles to really understand this mystery. It's a little bit like talking about a king, right? A lot of us, uh, uh, you know, we don't really appreciate when we talk about Jesus is a king. Oh, yeah, he's king. Yeah, he's like the president. No, he's a king. We don't have that, you know, that reverence for a king because we're at least 200 years removed from it uh, historically and, uh, and really quite longer because he never came to the United States when we were under the king. And so we, we miss things sometimes. We miss the imagery of king. And here we may be tempted to miss the imagery of the mystery. And so it's good to go back into history 
and to kind of refresh our memory about this. Now, Christ prophesied about this very thing with the, with the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, he says, the hour is coming. Now, when, when, some, when Jesus says the hour is coming, he's talking about a prophecy that won't be fulfilled in a thousand years or two thousand years. He's talking about one that will imminently be fulfilled. The hour is coming uh, when, yeah, sorry, the hour is coming and now is that the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. Paul is marveling at the unfolding of God's will and at the fulfillment of prophecy. Can you imagine if we were living in a day where prophecy was being unfolded before our very eyes, how surprised we would be, how in awe and wonder we would be. And here Paul is writing, and he's seeing this very prophecy fulfilled, uh, the prophecy of spirit and truth that he mentions to the woman at the well. And Paul is marveling at it. Well, that's the history of mystery. Let's move on to the story of glory. And I just have a few personal stories that I'll share here. Well, one personal one and one from uh, this other book. As the church is made up of sinners of all types of people from all different walks of life, as we begin, as, as, as God's will is revealed in the church age, it gives us something of a foretaste of heaven. By foretaste, I mean we don't have to wait until heaven to experience some of these things here now and in the church. He shows us that every tribe and every tongue can worship together now and in Christ. He surprises us, God surprises us, with the bigness of the church by bringing together people who sometimes have nothing in common other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's a lot. This reminds me of my college roommate. Some of you might know, remember him or know him. He used, attended here years ago, Rich Pence. He, uh, he and I had very little in common. And when I first moved in with him, I thought, I'm going to move in with these guys. I'm going to live with them for a year or two, and I'm going to get out, and I'm never going to see them again because I've got nothing in common, particularly with Rich. I'll give you a story. We were washing dishes together, and this dishwashing episode uh, revealed much about Rich's character that uh, has stuck with me uh, even to this day. I fill up a sink full of uh, dishwater, and I remember Rich saying these very words that I'm about to say to you. He said, <clears throat> Rich was a very serious guy, very, uh, very, just very by the book, very detailed, very unlike me. Uh, and, he, uh, and he said, uh, as, he was, uh, as we were doing the dishes, he was washing, I was drying. He explained to me that, he says, this is how we do dishes in our house. I thought, oh, this is this is a house. It's not just, you know, this, is, this is a big deal. This is our house. This is how we do the dishes. He says, we start with things that our mouth touches. We start with the glasses, and then we move on to the silverware. Then we do the dishes. Finally, we finish up with the pots and pans. Straight face. Wasn't joking at all. Just dead serious. And wanted me to make sure I got it. And I looked at him, and I didn't say a thing, but I thought, I will never take a vacation with you. <laughs> well, years later, after working through, you know, difficulties and working and just being roommates and living out our faith together, guess what? Rich and I and his wife, Brenda, who used to attend here as well, are, you know, we're planning about, we're planning possibly taking a vacation together. Because 
Jesus Christ was bigger uh, than the dishes. He was bigger than, you know, a serious personality and a not-so-serious personality or uh, somebody who was, uh, you know, hardcore about the dishes and somebody who could, quite frankly, care less. Uh, and so this is the glory working out in the church that, and I've told my kids this, not everybody you think is going to be your friend is going to be your friend. You might pick some of your friends, but in my case, I, I did not. Well, another example of this is one biographer of C.S. Lewis uh, on the back of the book, and there have been many, on the back of the book, uh, I picked it up and it said, um, the writer was talking about how little C.S. Lewis might have in common with Billy Graham, since Lewis was high church, Graham was low church. So high church would be Catholic, Anglican, uh, that sort of thing, uh, and low church would be well, us, quite frankly. Us. We are the low church, whether you like it or not. Um, and so, uh, so Lewis was high church. Graham was low church. Lewis freely drank and socialized with the upper crust of Oxford and Cambridge. Graham did not. Graham had North Carolina, quite frankly, something of hillbilly roots. What did these two men, what could they possibly have in common? But the point is that being in church together being in the invisible church together, even if you don't attend the same church, and having little else in common is bigger and more glorious than not being in the church and having hundreds of common interests and traits. I would like to witness a conversation between Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis, if I could. I think it would be fascinating. I think it would be intriguing, and I think they would find that they had much in common in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's the history of mystery and the story of glory of the local church and the invisible church. Now, some of you are thinking, mystery and glory sound like big words, and they sound like, well, I ought to appreciate them more, and I don't know how to apply that. I don't really know what to do with that. It sounds so academic. And how do I do apply this? And in other words, what we oftentimes say as pastors is, so what? So what do we do about it? But it seems to me that the question should not be, how do I apply these, you know, how do I apply any commands from the New Testament without understanding the church in its glory and in its mystery? You see, most of the commands given to the church, uh, most of the commands given in the New Testament are given to the collective body of the church, not to individuals. And maybe this is where some of our American independence creeps in a little bit. We think, well, uh, you know, I'm commanded to share my faith or I'm commanded to uh, uh, pray for one another. And so I think about myself doing it. But quite frankly, uh, there's a number of commands. And I'll go through a little bullet point list here that I think are very difficult, if not impossible, to obey if you're not engaged in the church. How can I embrace the mystery of true diversity? Not diversity the HR department talks about. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about true diversity in the body of Christ. How can we embrace that, Jew together with Gentile, uh, those like me and those very much not like me, living out our faith? Can some, would somebody be able to bring me a tissue maybe? I uh, have a bit of a runny nose here. Um, how can I embrace that? the living out of our faith and the unfolding of God's will in his church. If I'm, thank you, Louise, all right. 
keep the whole box. How can we bear one another's burdens, as Paul commands the book of Galatians, without appreciating the glory of the church, without being engaged in the glory of the church? How can I love my neighbor without caring about the bride of Christ? Chris talked about the bride of Christ a few weeks ago. How can I love my neighbor and disregard that? How can I forgive, exhort, admonish a brother when not uh, when not living alongside him, working alongside him in the church? How can I pray for others collectively with others? How can I join with others in church if I'm alienated from the church? You see, the church is essential to obeying these commands. If you're looking to live out your faith in a solitary situation, you're on a very rocky road here with these commands. In wrapping up, I'll, uh, I'll share a little bit from Sheldon Vonnegut. It's an interesting book, and I'm not yet done with it. It's, uh, it says the byline is a story of faith, tragedy, and triumph. It starts with uh, Vonnegut before he comes to faith and his wife, and it, uh, and it goes through his uh, encounters with C.S. Lewis at Oxford and coming to Christ, and then it finishes uh, with the tragedy of his wife dying. And uh, so it's a story of faith, tra- tragedy, and triumph. Uh, and, but one of the things that I grabbed out of here was his perspective on the church. And uh, this is what Vonnegut says. And this is coming from Vonnegut while still an unbeliever, which makes it very intriguing to me. Uh, let's see. Uh, says Vonnegut, No longer did the church appear only a disreputable con- conjuries, sorry, conjuries of quarreling sex. Now, we saw the church, he and his wife, saw the church splendid and terrible, sweeping down the centuries with anthems and shining crosses and steady-eyed saints. No longer was the faith something for children. Intelligent people held it strongly, and they walked to a secret singing that we could not, that we could not hear. Or did we hear something high and clear and unbearably sweet? You see, part of Vonnegut's conversion was a change in the way he viewed the church. We all need to refresh our view of the church from time to time. We have often adrift thinking that floats slowly away. Like uh, when I was a kid, uh, we used to have inner inner tube floats down the Colorado River. And, you know, you just, you feel like you're still. How you look over at the bank and you see you're moving. That's how we can be with topics of theology and certainly with the church is that we realize we've been floating for a little bit and we need to resharpen our focus and Von, as Vonnegut did and as he saw in his conversion. It's good to tether ourselves to Ephesians chapter 3 to go back and to reflect on the beginnings of the church in Ephesians 3, the mystery and the glory. Well, it seems fitting to conclude our series and to conclude this teaching by reciting the Apostles' Creed, shared by, affirmed by, and recited by numerous churches over the centuries. I think 140 AD is about the uh, date that most people agree on. So you do the math. I can't, uh, I can't calculate that quickly. Uh, it's been around a while. So we will recite this together. It has the core, the essence of the faith. 
and it has been embraced by uh, many different churches throughout the years, over and over again, of different, uh, different theological persuasions. So we will read this together. So why don't we stand up? We'll read this together, and then we will close with the benediction. And I have it here in front of me, so you can... Yes, thank you. Okay. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And finally, for the benediction. From Ephesians 3, 21-22, right at the end of the chapter here that we've been discussing. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.